Last November, the world watched as U.S. citizens not only voted for their next president, but also made a major choice in the leadership of our world. While we're nearly six months past the election, we're in the early days of a new Biden administration, charting a new course for the U.S. with major implications for Canada and the world as we look to a future post the pandemic. It was a privilege to speak with a leader with deep knowledge and experience in Canada-U.S. relations, Mary Scott Greenwood, better known as Scotty. A former political appointee in the Clinton administration, Scotty is currently partner and managing director of Crestview Strategy U.S., as well as the chief executive officer of the Canadian-American Business Council. Scotty and I had a far-reaching conversation on many topics, and I'm looking forward to sharing the discussion with you. I'm Duncan Sinclair, and this is Courage Incorporated. Scotty, thanks for joining us on Courage Incorporated. You've built a tremendous career both in business and government affairs. My first question is, as someone born and raised in the U.S., you've dedicated a significant part of your career to strengthening the relationship between Canada and the U.S. So please tell us what inspired you to take on this role of bringing our two nations closer together. Well, Duncan, thank you so much for having me. And it's an honor and a delight to be with you. And and you're right. Everything I do these days professionally has a little bit of, or a lot of maple hint in it, as we say, a little bit of maple flavor. And I really came to it through a happy appointment by former President Bill Clinton. I was appointed to be the chief of staff to the United States ambassador to Canada. So uh, I spent four years in Ottawa doing diplomacy for our country, which is a huge honor, and just fell in love with Canada and since have had the opportunity to travel from coast to coast to coast, as you might say in Canada, have traveled all throughout your spectacular country, including spending a fair amount of time up north. So my theory is, particularly for Americans, but it's probably true of anyone, the more you get to know Canada, the more you love it. There's a lot to love about the country. So when I left government and got into the private sector, the question was, with this giant economic relationship, is there work to be done? Is there a way to be involved in the cross-border conversation that's meaningful? And the answer to that all those years ago was yes. So the long answer to your simple question is I fell in love with the place when I was posted there as a diplomat and have continued my admiration and my work with Canada ever since. And we're certainly delighted, Scotty, with all the wonderful things that you've accomplished. Would you say that over your time in that role that you're seeing a greater interest in Canada by the people you work with in the U.S., or has it been stayed about the same? How has it changed, if at all? I think for Canadian listeners, there used to be, there's never enough attention placed on Canada by the United States. And we used to say, be careful what you wish for, because along comes a president who actually focuses on Canada and the focus is not positive. And that's what we saw over the last several years. But a funny thing came out of a fairly tense period of time in the Canada-US relationship. And that is when the trade agreement, uh, which is the foundation of our economic relationship, was being threatened and renegotiated, suddenly Americans had to focus on what was at stake. Americans had to understand in a very serious way how interdependent we are and how reliant we are on Canada. This is something that's obvious to Canadians, not necessarily as obvious to Americans, but it became so during the renegotiation of the North American Free Trade Agreement. So I would say out of chaos and out of a challenging period came actually a benefit to the Canada-US relationship, which is more American policymakers than ever have an understanding of why Canada is important to the US 
and how we're in this together. So we're at a point in the relationship where we can seize upon that momentum and figure out where we go next. Scotty, when we think about our history as two nations living side by side, I'm reminded of a Robert Frost poem titled Mending Walls with a line that says, good fences make good neighbors. While we don't have a fence or a wall, we have closed our borders to all non-essential travel during the pandemic. And I'm keen to hear your thoughts on how Canada and the U.S. can become better neighbors in the future. Really good observation about good fences making good neighbors. I I think we have to have a, a good, healthy respect for each other's sovereignty as a starting point. But then right away, it's important to acknowledge that we're in this common economic space. And we've got to learn the lessons of the pandemic, of the really awful situation we've been in, the world has been in over the last many months, but learn lessons from that and not just treat the border as something you can just, you know, sort of temporarily close from time to time and expect the relationship to rebound and bounce back the way it was before. I think we've got to look at how do we manage risk? We managed during COVID-19, Duncan, to continue the flow of commerce pretty well. I give the government high marks for that. What we have not done as well is figure out how to keep the movement of people going when they needed to. And that's something we're going to have to work on. I'm working on that through several different coalitions and with a lot of thought leaders, but that's going to be an important lesson. Like, let's look back at the experience. Let's figure out how to improve our cooperation at the border so we can minimize risks, whatever kind of risk is, but also maximize people's ability to get back and forth. Scotty, I agree that we should not lose sight of the learnings that have been made during the past year. The importance of cross-border activity to our economy is clear. And while none of us want to imagine another pandemic or major crisis, it is important that we learn from this past year and devise a better approach for how our two countries support each other in the event of a future crisis. Now, Scotty, as you think about your career over the past 20 years, that includes working alongside governments of various political stripes on both sides of the border, what do you see the future of a Biden-Harris administration looking like for Canada? What are some of the big wins or advancements that Canada and the U.S. could achieve together and ultimately create a more successful economic cooperation between our two countries? There are a couple of obvious areas that everyone's talking about. Cooperation on a transition to a low-carbon future is something where the Biden administration and Canada and many other countries are aligned. So I think you can see a lot of collaboration that way. But there's a less obvious and less sexy, but very important area that I think could be really beneficial. And it's Canada and the United States cooperating on regulations, regulatory cohesion. It's something that President Obama and Prime Minister Harper started in 2011. And the reason it's important, Duncan, is that if we can find ways to have governments spend less money and have enforcing regulations and in testing and all of that and have private sector spend less money in complying, but yet not compromise safety. A car that's made uh, partially in Canada and partially in the United States and between Detroit and Windsor with its supply chain, it's got to get tested, right? It, you ha- You know, crash test dummies. So in Canada, you might have to test it at 60 miles an hour. In the U.S., you might have to test it at 62 miles an hour. And Both governments have to certify that it's safe. The car companies have to do those tests on each side. And it's just redundant. There's no, you know, we should be able to recognize that if a car is safe or a car seat is safe in Canada, it's also safe in the United States. And that applies to food and to consumer products and all sorts of things. So 
Uh, it's a long answer, Duncan, but I think the the most exciting progress we can make, at least from an economic point of view, is on regulatory cohesion. Scotty, staying on the general theme of consumer goods, one of the first things President Biden declared was that the notion of America first was over and that the U.S. would foster stronger collaboration with the rest of the world. But we are still hearing a lot of Buy America language, which can cause Canadians to wonder, is this just America first with a friendlier face? I'm curious about your thoughts on how Canada and the U.S. can return to some of the hopes and aspirations of the original NAFTA agreements between our two countries. Well, I think dialogue is the answer to that. And we're off to a good start with dialogue. You know, the big bilateral meeting that was held between President Biden and much of his cabinet, prime minister and his cabinet, was an incredibly good start. Because the only way that we're going to be able to navigate issues like Buy American, Buy American is by having a conversation about them. So the president is listening to Canada. He's interested and open-minded about what Canadian interests might have to say, but he is going to also put the interests of the U.S. labor movement front and center in what he does. So so it'll be important to have a dialogue about how actually Canada-U.S. collaboration is helpful to workers on both sides of the border and the real adversary, I guess, economically that both Canada and the United States are facing comes from outside of North America, right? And so that's something that the president understands and Canada certainly understands. And so framing how we work together in global terms um, and in terms that help workers in our own constituencies, I think is going to be a key to this. Scotty, on the topic of big issues that our countries can work on together, let's pivot to a key societal issue, gender equality. I know that you're also the managing partner of Exponent, a global coalition with a mission to bring gender equity to the highest levels of influence and decision-making and amplify gender equality. In the statement that President Biden and Prime Minister Trudeau shared following their first bilateral meeting, we saw recognition that women have been hit hardest by this pandemic, including leaving the workforce at alarming rates. Through your work with Exponent, what are some of the promising initiatives that you see gaining traction and that you think our two countries can do to be leaders in this space? Thanks for mentioning it. And and I think it's important for everybody to understand that equity and equality, whether it's gender or other forms of equity and equality, are not just feel-good things, but they're good for business. They're good for our economies. And good things happen when we include women and underrepresented people at decision-making tables. So when Prime Minister Trudeau in 2015 named his gender-balanced cabinet, everybody took note of that around the world. And at the time, I remember some guys in Parliament saying, geez, you know, they, they kind of took our spot. Like I'd be in cabinet if it weren't for this artificial number. And I thought at the time, golly, that's a heck of a reaction to something that should be as basic as equal representation. Now in 2021, it doesn't seem as radical or uh, as revolutionary to have a gender balanced cabinet. It seems like something that just makes sense. President Biden's cabinet is the most diverse ever. The first Native American uh, cabinet secretary was confirmed just a few days ago. These steps make a difference. And uh, I see a lot more of that. So whether it's in cabinet, whether it's at the board table, whether it's as heads of university or heads of civil society, these are places where we need um, our leaders to look like our citizens. And that's a more diverse cohort than we have currently in those positions of power and influence. 
And how do you see the business communities in our two countries being able to do more to really advance the issues of equity and accessibility and inclusion in the workplace beyond sort of what happens at the level of government? Interestingly, in the wake of Black Lives Matter, when George Floyd was killed and a a global movement was sparked, many businesses kind of woke up and said, we have to play a role not just in providing shareholder value, that's incredibly important, but also providing our role in civil society, in democracy, in promoting equality. And so businesses, I think, have to continue that, not just react to an event in a moment, but really institutionalize their response. So I see all kinds of advertisements now for a chief diversity officer from a company that never had anybody in the C-suite focused on diversity. Companies are going to have to continue to do that. It can't be tokenism. It can't be, you know, just a once a year corporate social responsibility report where there's one chapter on how diverse they are. It's got to be a real commitment. It's got to be real leadership. And by the way, I think it's happening. Well, and and of course, Scotty, in the times in which we're living now, issues of social justice are extremely important. Another major issue for all of us, of course, is this question of climate. And from your perspective, when you think about the Canada and U.S. societies working together and moving forward in a meaningful way, what are your thoughts about what we can do on climate? What courageous choices do you believe our two countries could do more together on? Well, you know, one courageous choice to use your formulation is a decision that was made actually in the Canadian oil sands several years ago to share intellectual property on greening of the oil sands, on lowering uh, their carbon footprint. You have these big, giant oil and gas companies that are fierce competitors all day long, and they saw an existential threat to their business model, and they realized if one of them could make progress on, for example, an issue like addressing tailings ponds, which is an environmental problem that needed to be looked at. If one of them figured it out, that there was a responsibility to share that uh, knowledge and that intellectual property with the others. And so we saw the Oil Sands Innovation Alliance, just to give an example, as a way where people that competed during the day, companies that competed during the day, realized they had to work together on certain giant issues. We saw the same kind of collaboration uh, during the pandemic between the big pharmaceutical innovators, right? Pfizer uh, shared its library with everyone else in terms of the development of the vaccine. And we got a vaccine probably nine years faster than we otherwise would have. So the choices that companies have to make are to be generous with their knowledge and to figure out how to collaborate with each other on big existential questions like carbon reduction, like use of water, protection of the environment right across the board. And governments can play a role in helping incentivize that kind of behavior and rewarding that kind of behavior. And I think those are the kinds of conversations and activities that are really here to stay uh, from the business community. Another reality of our world, Scotty, is the whole, I'll call it, tilt to Asia that we've been seeing in terms of the relative levels of economic growth and economic opportunity going into the future. And at times, both the U.S. and Canada have struggled with their relationships with some major countries in the region, such as China. What are your thoughts about how Canada and the U.S. can collaborate better to take more advantage of a, of a different kind of relationship with the Tilt Asia as an economic force in our world? Well, I think we've got to recognize the complexity that China is. 
yes, Asia as a region, but really China as a singular player in that region and in the world in terms of its ambition and its global reach. So I think we've got to see it for what it is. And, you know, I look at initiatives like Canada and the United States in this first bilateral meeting that they had came out with a statement about how we're going to collaborate together in the Arctic. That is relevant. It's relevant to the China question because China has declared itself an Arctic nation. And if you actually sort of were hovering over the earth and looking down at the North Pole at the Arctic, China isn't there. (laughs) Uh, But yet it's such an important part of our world that China has just declared that they're an Arctic nation. So, And China has collaborates with another adversary of Canada and the United States, which is Russia. So I think recognizing the threats and recognizing the opportunity for Canada and the United States to collaborate more on a robust policy on things like Arctic, whether it's communication or emergency response or uh, research uh, on climate change, et cetera. Those are the kinds of things we can do together. And, you know, the thing is, with all due respect to you and me, the really meaningful progress that, that we've seen, uh, the movements we've seen in the last 10 years in the world have been sparked by people whose age begins with a two or even in teenagers, right? It's the younger people. When you think about Time's Up, Me Too, Black Lives Matter, even Arab Spring, young people connected principally through social media have sparked these huge global movements that are really meaningful. So as you continue to think about the future, as you continue to think about what are the big lessons we've learned through this pandemic in terms of how our businesses work together and what we've learned about being in a virtual world that will be helpful to both our countries, what do you think are some of the real sort of shared lessons for Canada and the U.S. to take out of this pandemic to make our our relationship together even stronger? Well, a couple of things. How you feel about the virtual world depends a lot on where you are in your life. So for people who have the luxury or the privilege of being able to work virtually, like they were able to keep their jobs through this pandemic because a lot of people weren't, Uh, they were able to work from home because a lot of people weren't. But for those of us that have that kind of luxury and privilege, how we experience the idea of working from home is really different based on, I think, where we are in life. So like at my ripe old age, I'm happy to work from home. I have enough Wi-Fi. I have enough space. But my 24-year-old daughter you know, she's only been in the working world a couple of years and she really misses her colleagues and she doesn't have the interaction. Uh, she doesn't have a the benefit of a lifetime of human relationships and breaking bread together uh, that you and I probably have. So I think it's important to recognize that the lessons of work from home are different depending on where you are in life. In terms of Canada and the United States, I think we have taken for granted that we can figure out how to close and open the border at will. And That's a mistake, Duncan. I think while grocery store shelves remained full because commerce, trucks and trains were allowed to continue, people were not allowed to go back and forth across the border, even in a risk-based double, triple COVID negative test quarantine kind of reality. And that is taking a toll. That is a problem. Uh, And back to something we talked about earlier, one of the secrets of the Canada-US relationship is that we like each other and we know each other. And the more people vacation in each other's land, the more people go to their cottage on the other side of the border, you know, all those, we call them summer people up along the Canada-US border. All of that is part of the fabric and the special nature of the relationship that our countries enjoy. And that has ended. Um, So we've got to get back to that and not just assume that 
you can just close down for snowbirds or close down for summer people or close down for business executives that are trying to to see their customers or for workers that need to service equipment on one side of the border or the other. So I think the lesson is we've got to figure out a new safe way to have a common physical space um, that matches the common economic space that we enjoy. You raised a good point there, Scotty, about how people have experienced this pandemic differently depending on their circumstance. And I don't believe that that gets enough attention. And your suggestion about identifying a common physical space that matches the common economic space is a really interesting one. While we have a very integrated supply chain, there have been situations where trade has been stopped. For example, the situation with 3N and their N95 masks. Our listeners might recall that those being manufactured in the U.S. at the time of the beginning of the pandemic were blocked from coming to Canada. Yet a lot of materials used to make those masks were actually being shipped from Canada to the U.S. And there are a number of Canadian healthcare workers that cross the border every day to work in U.S. hospitals. Now, one of the more current issues relates to vaccines. President Biden has made it clear that the U.S. is going to focus on vaccinating all of its citizens first before vaccines manufactured and approved in the U.S. can go to other countries. How do you balance sovereignty and national interest while being collaborative and supportive of our neighbors and global allies? And how can our countries work more effectively to discuss these issues together? You hit right on it in the question. Talking together is a key part of it. I think we have to be realistic about what's possible. Like this global pandemic has been unusual right? Every government in the world is trying to figure out how to protect its citizens. And uh, some governments have done better than others. So I think we've got to have be realistic and understand that when it's a crisis and people are dying, governments are going to, in the first instance, take care of their own citizens. And I think right following that, hopefully help take care of friends and neighbors and countries in mo- most in need. So I think it's about being realistic and not being resentful about or frustrated about the situation we find ourselves in. The governments are, are trying as hard as they can to protect everybody. It's going at a different pace. And, you know, during pandemic, during the early days, I can remember Canadians thinking, well, you know, we're handling it better than the U.S., right? So we're, we're ha- sort of happy to keep our borders closed. I think there's going to be an awkward period of time this summer, Duncan, where That may have been true. Maybe Canada handled the pandemic relatively better than the U.S. in terms of how it went. But now that we have vaccines, if a large portion of the U.S. is vaccinated by May and Canada is not vaccinated until later in the summer, uh, I think that's going to be an awkward period. And I think we have to be patient with each other and we have to be forgiving of our government leaders who are trying really hard to get this right. And it's just not a simple solution. But I guess, Scotty, from your point, in terms of the the courage that leaders could show, what do you think would be a good plan forward for our two countries to try to figure out how to let things reopen, how to bring more collaboration back between our two countries, even, as you say, as there's awkwardness in how we balance out some of the short-term health issues that we're both managing? I would say it would be important to open up 
the dialogue so that it's not just government to government, but it includes real people. (laughs) You know, having the courage to take on real feedback, not just a sort of check the box consultation exercise that, you know, happens from time to time, but to sit down and to put in the hard work of really talking and listening to people about, okay, what has the last year and a half been like? And how can we do better? Because I guarantee you, there are plenty of business people that I work with that would, if given the opportunity to give an earful to their government leaders about how to make the border experience, the cross-border experience better for the sake of our prosperity, they'd be happy to do it. But they're not going to do it if nobody's willing to open their ears and open their hearts to some really difficult conversations and challenge our assumptions. So, Scotty, I've read at times that you've talked about ways that Canada can help act as a facilitator for the U.S. re-emerging into the world stage. Can you tell me a little bit more about some of your ideas around that? Sure. You know, when I was um, when I was in government a million years ago, Bill Clinton was president of the United States. Jean Chrétien was prime minister of Canada. And there was a, a war happening in Europe, in Bosnia. And the two leaders would talk to each other about this quote-unquote European war. And uh, the ambassador that I worked for tells the story a lot where he says, you know, Chrétien said, look, Bill, you handle Germany and I'll handle France. (laughs) And then let's see if we can get the Europeans to lead the effort and we'll support through NATO and through our efforts. We can say to each other, uh, you handle this part, I'll handle that part, and let's get back together and compare notes. That's a good way to approach things. I think we'll see that on climate. You know, if the U.S. and Canada are aligned coming out of the Climate Leaders Summit in April on the road to Glasgow, as they say, I think there's a lot we can accomplish. I mean, think back to Kyoto, right, to those talks. At the time, the U.S. and Canada were kind of trying to outgreen each other, right? The U.S. would say, well, we're going to have this approach. And Canada would say, we'll do that plus one. And then the U.S. would say, we'll do that. And while we were basically competing with each other on our climate strategy, the European Union got together and showed up in Kyoto with one common approach. And they nearly cleaned our clock from a policy point of view because they had the ability to lean into each other's strengths in a way that Canada, the United States, Canada with its plentiful hydro had one approach, for example, on the power sector, the U.S. had a different. So on big global challenges, it makes so much sense for us to lock arms and not compete against each other, but to figure out how together we tackle them. And and that's what I see, uh, I hope to see coming out of this year and heading into the next few years. So, Scott, if you had the chance to sit down with President Biden or, or Prime Minister Trudeau and say, you know, here's a real area where you could just bring more courage to your leadership, to the betterment of the world, what would you say to them? I'd say have the courage to put away meaningless differences in the way we run our governments and figure out a way to lean into our strengths, allow our governments to really help each other in solving big problems. Um, So for the purposes of certain policies, get rid of the border altogether. You know, we have great civil servants on both sides of the Canada-U.S. border, and they work on the same things. If a drug is approved in Canada, it's good enough for the U.S. and vice versa. You you have to ask people to do something that they can do, right? So, So they are leaders of government. So the question is, what can government do? I mean, they also have bully pulpits, I guess. But I would say unleash the brilliance of the public service and ask them to work together to solve common problems. That would be amazing if we could do that. Well, again, Scotty, thank you so much for giving us this time today. This has been absolutely terrific and a wonderful conversation. So hopefully uh, you've enjoyed it as well and, and appreciate you making this time available. 
Thank you so much for having me. It's been a delight talking to you, and I hope we can get together in person one of these days soon. Absolutely. Thank you for listening to the fourth episode of Courage Incorporated. If you had any takeaways from today's episode, consider sharing it with your friends and colleagues or giving the show a rating and a review. We'll be back in your podcast feed soon. Until then, enjoy spring, stay safe, and as always, be courageous. I'll speak with you soon.